I'm Dr. Alison Walsh and I'm from Cambridge Infectious Diseases and we are a group of people across the university who bring together different disciplines of people um, to work on infectious diseases and it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ellen Nisbet who I understand is going to be okay come Brexit because she holds three passports apparently. <laughs> Now, Ellen is a research group leader in the Department of Biochemistry um, at the University of Cambridge, obviously, and she examines the evolution of malaria, the parasite Plasmodium. Um, she also works on sort of conventional photosynthetic organisms, algae, um, dinoflagellate algae, and they're pretty important symbionts in coral reefs and strangely she apparently collaborates with archaeologists examining the origins of horses I don't you have to ask her afterwards about that connection um, so she's a microbiologist originally from University of College London and she completed her PhD at Cambridge um, and then she moved to Australia, so um, off for the sunshine as a visiting fellow at the University of Melbourne and then as a senior lecturer at the University of South Australia in Adelaide. Now, she had a permanent job and she used to make regular trips home and apparently <laughs> on one of these trips home do you remember that time when we had that volcanic eruption and all the flights got cancelled well Ellen met somebody <laughs> who became her boyfriend who became her husband <laughs> and so she left Australia and returned to Cambridge and roosted in the department here so we're very glad it all worked out uh, she had, it obviously worked out because she's got two kids so but before she has to get back to them so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you with Ellen well thanks very much everybody for coming on this miserable day to come and hear my talk about my research on coral reefs um, on malaria and a little tiny bit at the end on drug discovery so this is really research that I'm doing at the moment um, in the biochemistry department and at Downing College where I'm a fellow and um, this there's no pointer here. This is um, Heron Island, which is one of the islands on the Great Barrier Reef, which is a res half research island, um, half owned by the University of Queensland, where I've been to, to conduct some research, which is very nice, paid to go there. And the other half is a luxury resort where people pay lots of money to go on holiday. And I always thought this was hilarious that they were paying and I was being paid to be there. The other, you can walk around the whole island in about half an hour, it's not very big. It's got turtles nesting on the beach, you have to be careful where you stand because you might fall over a mess of turtles. Um, and the other amazing thing about this little island is that it's on two different time zones. Um, <laughs> the half that's research island is on Queensland time because it is actually in Queensland, um, but the half that is on um, the resort is on New South Wales time because that's where the tourists come and they want to stay on, on Sydney time. Um, so this must be the smallest island to have two different time zones. So, Coral Reefs. How many of you have seen Finding Nemo? Good. So here is poor old Nemo who lives on the Great Barrier Reef with his mates and he gets lost and he goes off um, to Sydney. But in the 
I'm not going to talk about the fish. There are plenty of people who talk, who look about the fish. But the thing that I'm actually interested in is the coral, which is these things that you can see behind him. And these are animals that, that live there that make up this ecosystem. Um, here is an actual picture photograph of a coral reef. Um, you can see for scale the um, diver um, in the background and the fish swimming around. And then these are the corals um, in the front. So here are some close-ups of individual of corals that my, my colleague um, Daniel um, took. He's in the chemistry department when he was a PhD student in Australia. Um, and he took these on Heron Island, that island you saw um, before. These are probably about 30 centimetres um, in length. Now, coral is an animal. And they are found right across the world. So here is a map of the world where we see the dots um, is where we find coral reefs. Um, they cover about 0.7% of the Earth's surface, so not very much, but they sustain about 4,000 different species of fish. Um, and the subsistence farming, which is... Uh, sorry, for subsistent fishing, which is conducted by a large proportion of the world's population, about 25% of that is fishing that is done from fish that are on coral reefs. And in countries with coral reefs, it's a huge proportion of their tourism. So though we might think as coral reefs as sort of really interesting places to go on holiday and sort of great for diversity, actually they're very economically important um, parts of the world. So the most famous one, of course, is the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Here is Australia. So one of my three passports is from Australia because I said I wasn't moving back to Cambridge till I'd been there long enough to collect my Australian citizenship. So I became Australian and then left the country about a week later. Which <laughs> 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 is ridiculous. But, um, um, but so that where that green bit um, is, is where the, the Great Barrier Reef um, is. Now here is coral, as I said, it's, it's an animal, it grows very slowly um, and it's, it's embedded in, in, a, in a calcium sort of system which has been built up over many, many generations, many thousands of years. So coral reefs don't take many thousands of years to build up and it's the bit on the top um, that is alive. So now if we zoom in, this is one of the corals, this is the little tentacles that they have. Um, coming out and these things sort of wave around just like your fingers the bit smaller than fingers but um and you can see the little the green dots on it and those are algae those are individual algae which live um within the coral it's a symbiotic relationship which means that it's beneficial to both parties so you may sometimes see a technical term called zooxanthellae so zoos People in different fields like making up terms to make things complicated. Zooxanthellae are algae that live inside coral. And, and the technical sort of group of these algae, they're called dinoflagellate algae. Um, so here is a, as a, a light microscope picture of them. This species is called Symbiodinium, and this is the most common species which we find inside the corals. So each one of those is a, is a separate cell. Each one is an individual. They're not multicellular. They're single-cellular little, little things, um, and they're living inside the coral. And then on the right, 
Yes, and on the right here, um, we have an electron micrograph, a sort of a zoom in um, of an individual symbiodinium cell. And as you can see, it's got this long sort of tail coming out, and that's to help it swim, so it can swim around. So, that, so these algae swim around, have a free life stage when they swim in the water, and then they invade the coral, probably when the coral are very young. So when the coral is first born, a few days old, they take up the algae that they're going to have, and they live and they grow, and these algae multiply and grow within them. So most, most corals will sort of acquire their algae as babies, and then they will grow with them. And there's a very few species where actually it's passed on mother to child. But it's all symbiodinium algae. So why bother having some algae living inside you if you are an animal? Well, the key things that algae can do, they're green. They can do photosynthesis. So they can take sunlight and they can convert it to glucose, convert it to usable energy. So this is the reaction you may have learned about in school, carbon dioxide and water giving glucose and oxygen. So this is classically what we think of trees doing taking in the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and um, releasing oxygen. This is why trees are a good thing. Um, but photosynthesis isn't just restricted to trees. It happens in algae as well. So our little algae inside um, our coral is doing photosynthesis. So about 90% of the energy that the, uh, that the coral needs to survive is being provided by these algae which are living inside them. So without the algae, the, the corals starve and are really sick and do not do well. They are absolutely reliant on this, this sugar being produced by photosynthesis by these algae. So these algae are being nicely protected by the host coral. They don't have to swim around, they just have to sit there and do photosynthesis. They export their spare glucose, they export it into the cell. So this is what happens on the left-hand side in a healthy coral. You can see that there's, there's lots of green dots in there. It's got lots of healthy um, algae in it releasing, releasing um, the, the glucose. When the coral gets stressed, and there's lots of reasons why they get stressed, which we'll go into a minute, they get stressed, and the algae get stressed, and the corals spit them out. And now I think they spit them out because they're, they're possibly a bit damaged, and so the coral doesn't want a damaged algae in it. But the problem is if you spit out the thing that's supplying you with food, there's no more food to come. And that's what happens when we get this thing called coral bleaching, and at which point the corals go all white because the the green colour from them, the brownish colour from them, is being provided by the algae. So here is an example of some algae on the um, some coral on the left, which has the algae living inside it. So this is healthy coral. It's nicely brownish colour. They come in all sorts of different colours depending on the pigment of the of the um, algae living inside it. But if they've lost it, they go white. And then we, the technical term is this for a coral that has been bleached. And here is a very fat, sad little clownfish, a Nemo fish, who is swimming along part, um, in, in, in a bleached reef. And this behind him should be all nice and sort of greeny-brown colour, and it's completely white. So this coral is well on the way to dying. 
Um, this photo was taken in Indonesia in um, 2011 when there was a mass coral bleaching event. Now, the American government does lots of bad things, but also does lots of good things. And one of the good things that they do is look after the coral reefs and keep track of um, by satellite as to how the health of the coral reefs. And in 2016, there was a very um, high temperatures around the world, and they have a classification scheme to see how the coral reefs are doing. And it's a sort of a stress system. So where it's circled on, on this map is where the coral reefs are present, and the sort of getting redder colours are the more dangerous it is um, for corals. So the higher the temperatures are going, and the more likely that the, the reef is going to be stressed and to bleach. And the list underneath of countries is countries where the coral reefs were at very severe um chance of having a coral bleaching event. And as you can see, it's right the way across the world, the corals were in trouble. Um, this is this week's, I looked up this week's, and actually we're fine, it, it all is okay. Here's the Great Barrier Reef, it's under no stress, so everything is happy there this week. So at the moment, we don't need to worry so much this week. Um, and this is for the next three months prediction. Now, it's partly that we're coming out of the south, southern hemisphere summer and we're into getting into autumn, so it's less likely to be so hot, but things are okay at the moment. And here is a reef that has died. This one is in Samoa. 2014, it was a healthy reef. 20 Feb by February 2015, when it was very hot, it was dying. By August 2015, um, it was dead. It's changed colour because other, other algae, other seaweeds and things have come and colonised what was there. So let's go back a second as to why do they die. Well, it's to do with high, high temperatures. It's also to do with pollution. It's also to do with nutrients, the wrong nutrients um, in the water. Sometimes it's to do with the changes in the water depth, so there's different amount of sunlight coming in. There's a whole host of reasons which all added up together. It can probably cope with one, but two or three together means that the reefs are not happy. So I want to just change tack for a bit and go back to how we classify things. Now, probably at school, and some of you here at school, you can nod or say, is this how you classified things into five kingdoms? Yes, we have animals, we have plants, we have fungi, we have protists, which are single-celled organisms, and we have prokaryotes. I'm getting a nod. Yes, from a teenager? Yes, okay. If we look at these... The first four of these groups, we actually can put together as one group. We call them eukaryotes, which means they all are organisms have their DNA. And all of these things together here are eukaryotes because they've all got their DNA in the nucleus. They've got it all enclosed in a little sack in the middle of the cell. Bacteria, which are also known as prokaryotes, don't do this. They've got their, their DNA loose. So all of these five things, these top four things, are actually one big group. So what we actually teach in school is completely wrong and um, shouldn't be taught in school. If you are, however, been taught it in school and had your GCSEs or A-levels coming up, please 
remember the wrong thing, we'd like you to get your A star, <laughs> come to Cambridge, and then you can write, you learn the right thing afterwards. So, actually, how we classify things is we classify them into three. The first one is bacteria. Now, these are predominantly single-celled organisms. They've got, as I said before, they've got their DNA free. This is things like E. coli, the MRSA, and that Staph aureus bacteria that you may have heard of that people in hospitals get sick with. It also includes something called cyanobacteria, and these are photosynthetic bacteria. So these are single cells that have their DNA loose in them. There's also a group of single-celled organisms that have free DNA, and these are called archaea. You probably haven't come across them very much because they live in extreme environments, but we do have them in our guts. They're, these are the things that make methane. Um, you might also find them in hot springs and stuff. These things, you, though, are there's lots of them, but sort of in popular culture that, or popular day-to-day -day life, we don't come across them very much. And then the final thing, which is what I work on, are these eukaryotes. And so these are things that have their DNA in the nucleus in the middle. So the trees, the people, and the dinoflagellates, algae, which are living inside our, our coral animals. And so this is how we put up our eukaryote tree together. This is how they go together. Now remember we had those domains of the plants where we can see the plants at the top. We had our fungi, which I've um, labelled there on the left with our mushroom, and we have our animals. Um, the animals are represented on this, this chart as um, some Drosophila, as some flies, and as a starfish. These are the animals down here. Now everything else, well not quite everything else, but almost everything else are single-celled things with a few exceptions, and they are what would have been called protists. And so they're actually found all over the place, and these few fungi animals and plants are actually just things that have gone multicellular from our single-celled origin. Now, where are the dinoflagellates on here? Oh, oh sorry, I've changed my slide. So dinoflagellates are these guys over here with their single little tail that you can see um, at the bottom. Now, if we look at a eukaryote, so this is a plant cell. Here is our nucleus with our DNA in it. And they also have something in them for doing their photosynthesis, which is called a chloroplast. So in plants and in algae, like our dinoflagellate algae, our photosynthesis occurs in the chloroplast. And it's an enclosed little sac inside the cell which has its own DNA. And this is where it does photosynthesis. How did it have this own little sac to do photosynthesis? Well, what happens about one and a half billion years ago is that we had an early eukaryote swimming around with its DNA in its nucleus. And it got hungry one day, and it got broody, and it said, well, I'd quite like to do photosynthesis. It looks quite handy that you could get sunlight and convert it into glucose. So it gobbles up one of these photosynthetic bacteria could do it. And normally they gobble up bacteria. This happens all the time. It digests it, and it's lunch or it's dinner, and that's fine. But instead of digesting it, it kept it, and it enslaved it. And this became the chloroplast. So a chloroplast is really a bacteria that has been enslaved and is living inside that eukaryotic cell. 
Now, that eukaryote didn't really think they don't have brains, but I think you can see um, what it's doing. Now, this theory has been around for some time, but it's been really made popular by a lady called Lynn Margulis, who is in the States, and she sort of first proposed it with proper evidence in 1969. So it's 50 years ago this year that this, end of this, this theory, this endosymbiosis theory, really came about. If you're interested, this is also how we um, got mitochondria. So what happened is here's our, our eukaryotes. We had the origin of the eukaryotes with these organisms swimming around. And very early on in that lineage, which led to the, the, the plants, there was this event which, uh, where the chloroplast was acquired and engulfed. But you know what? All those other organisms... If you look at them, we can see green in other places. These guys now do photosynthesis as well. So what happened? All these other eukaryotes got jealous. I'm like, well, we'd like to do photosynthesis too. So it's actually quite difficult to acquire a bacteria and engulf it and turn it into a chloroplast. So they took the easy way out and they went and had their lunch, but they ate a eukaryote that already had a chloroplast in it. So they engulfed that chloroplast. They didn't digest it. They spat out the spare nucleus, they spat out the spare mitochondria, they spat out the spare everything they didn't need, and they kept it. So these eukaryotes have a chloroplast, which they've basically stolen from another eukaryote. And we call this event a secondary endosymbiosis event. And this is actually quite easy, and it has happened a number of times across the tree, including in the lineage which led to my dinoflagellate algae. And so that's how they got their chloroplast. And all those other things did it as well. It's happened lots and lots of times across the tree. So there's my dinoflagellate, photosynthesizing away, giving its nutrients to the coral. And most, so I said chloroplasts have a genome. Here's the genome. They're circular. They look a bit like bacterial genomes. My dinoflagellate algae, though, said, oh, that's a bit ridiculous. Let's have it in lots of pieces. So they've got lots of little circles, and they have their genes on individual little circles. Um, it has about 20 of them. and keeps them all together to form all its genes. It keeps its genes in its chloroplast. And so we've been able to make use of this in the lab because it's quite useful if you're trying to test a theory. So why is it that that chloroplast gets damaged? What's wrong with it? If you can say, well, maybe this gene is involved or maybe that gene is involved. And the way we do it in the lab is we say, okay, we think gene A is involved. It makes a protein. So let's take away gene A from the organism and see what happens. Or let's add gene B to the thing, and let's see what happens. But we haven't been able to do that in dinoflagellates. People have tried for 20 years to do this and have completely failed. And we're delighted in the past year that we've actually made use of this fragmented little chloroplast genome to sneak in another gene. So we've artificially made one of these little circles of DNA. We've given it um, some an antibiotic resistance and we've shot it in. So we make these little circles of DNA, we put them on very tiny golden bullets and then we use this contraption here which I wish I could have bought but it's about <laughs> this big um, and it, we shoot those golden bullets at very high speed into <laughs> our algae. Now most of the algae 
pop and don't survive, but some of them survive, and we've able to grow up um, antibiotic resistance um, dinoflagellate algae for the first time. So we're about to go into some, some trials as to putting genes in, taking genes out, and seeing what's happened. So we'll come back in a few years' time, and we'll be able to tell you some of the theories over why the algae um, die with high temperatures are right. Now, malaria, how does that fit in? Well, the dinoflagellates are there, but their first cousins are the malaria parasites. So I've circled them right there next to it because the malaria parasite is very closely related to those dinoflagellate algae that live inside corals. So you've probably come across malaria. This is the last, the 2017 World Health Organization report says there's about 260 million cases of malaria a year, causing over 400,000 deaths. And sadly, most of those deaths are in children under the age of five. We think of malaria as a, as a disease of traveling. It's not. It's a childhood disease, and it's one of the leading causes of childhood mortality. The vast majority of these deaths are in Africa. Now, it's transmitted by a mosquito, but the mosquito is doing nothing more than carrying it from one patient to another. So I've got a bad cold. If I coughed all over you guys, I would give you my cold. I hope you, I hope you don't catch it. That's all the mosquito is doing. The mosquito is catching, biting one person who's got malaria, flying off to another person, biting them, and in the process, they're taking the malaria with them. When the malaria is in the human, the malaria goes and invades a red blood cell. And this is a picture that we took of a red blood cell. Well, these are about 10 red blood cells. And if you can see this purple splodge inside the red blood cell, that is a malaria parasite living and, and dividing within the red blood cell. So malaria um, has occurs in many parts of the world. So everywhere that is labeled red here has malaria transmission throughout it. In yellow, some bits of those countries have it, some don't. Um, and in green, um, malaria's transmission is not known to occur. So we think of malaria as a disease of the tropics, really. But that's not the case. And if you go back in time, so the grading of pinkness tells you where malaria was. In 1900, there was malaria in the UK. And actually, some of the worst malaria ever seen was in the fens in Cambridgeshire. Before they drained them, nice and swampy, perfect for lots of mosquitoes. Um, and there's horrendous stories of people losing children and children and one person who had eight wives because he kept on marrying, hoping somebody would survive and they all just died of malaria. So malaria has been here and we've wiped it out. Malaria isn't just found in mammals, in humans. It's found in mammals, all the mammals. It's found in birds. It's reptiles. It's called different things, but it's effectively the same thing. This is a tuatara, which is a New Zealand um, lizard type thing. And here it is at the top being infected with hepazoan, which is effectively lizard malaria. And there's periodic outbreaks in penguins. Um, Longleat Safari Park lost a few penguins about three years ago, and about two years before that, um, London Zoo's penguins came down with avian malaria as well. But why am I telling you this? 
And it's because the malaria parasite contains a remnant chloroplast. So in 1992, some scientists went looking for the mitochondria. They went looking for the DNA for the mitochondria. So this is a part of the cell that eukaryotes have. They couldn't find it, but they found the chloroplast instead. They were very puzzled at first, and then people did some analysis of the DNA and said, well, it looks a bit like a chloroplast. And one of the key people involved in the analysis was Professor Christopher Howe, who is in the um, biochemistry department here. He sent that paper to Nature, which is the, the major um, science journal, and they said, well, that's not very interesting, is it? But um, I think they're a bit wrong because many of our anti-malarial drugs actually work on this remnant chloroplast. So here is a diagram of a red blood cell. So what we've got on the right-hand side is the diagram and what we've got on the left is the photograph um, to tell you what's going on. And this picture was taken by Ross Waller. I think he was a PhD student at the time. He now is also in the biochemistry department. So we've got the red blood cell, then the inner circle where it's sort of shaded grey, that is the, the cell, that is the malaria parasite cell. The N is the nucleus. The squiggly line with an M is a mitochondria that does the energy production. And that circle bit that is glowing green there is a chloroplast. And we can take an electron micrograph of the chloroplast. Here it is. It's got lots of membranes because of the ancestral history of this organelle. And if we look at the genome for this of this chloroplast, well, it looks just like the one that we see in plants and in algae, except it's lost lots of genes. Why is it lost lots of genes? Well, it's forgotten how to do photosynthesis. So it doesn't need all those proteins any longer, but it needs everything else, so it's kept them. Now, we make use of this, because if you have DNA in a cell, there's, an, there's a protein called RNA polymerase, which copies it to make a copy of RNA. And then there's something called ribosome, which reads that RNA, which makes the protein, which makes up your cell. And I assume that some of you will have been traveling, would have been given an anti-malarial called doxycycline. I've definitely taken it when I've gone to um, Africa. Doxycycline is a drug that's, that stops the protein being made in this remnant chloroplast. Now, we knew for many years that doxycycline works, and it's actually an antibiotic, but it was never understood why. And when this chloroplast was found, suddenly it made sense. Because really, a chloroplast is an enslaved bacteria. So things that work to kill bacteria, like antibiotics, work to kill this remnant chloroplast. So my research is saying, well, can we stop it? Can we develop any new drugs to, to target this process? So what we've been doing is looking at the processes which is going on. So along the top, I've got my genome. This is the chloroplast genome that remains in this malaria parasite. All my genes lined up and is turned into RNA. Now we've identified some proteins which show the cell what to do. Because normally in a cell, when you make a piece of, of RNA, you get little bits of RNA which go for each gene. But in the malaria parasite and in um, chloroplasts in general, you make one great big long bit of RNA and then you chop it up. And you have special proteins which recognize where those chopping sites are. And so we've been looking for these special proteins 
because that's what goes on in the plant chloroplast, so we figured it probably goes on in the malaria chloroplast as well. So we found this red protein all the way along. We found the next protein in the scheme, which does the chopping. Here it is shown by the, pro by the, the red scissors. And it chops it up into the pieces of RNA ready to make the protein. So what we want to do is design drugs to stop this from working. Because we know that if we can stop this from working, we will kill the chloroplast. And if we kill the chloroplast, then the whole parasite dies and the person is cured from malaria. Now here's a technical bit for any scientists out there. They are called PPR proteins. They're really common. They um, in plants, there's maybe 400 or so of them. They stop translation, RNA editing, splicing, cleavage stability. They're really, really important in plants. There's 400 in plants. There's only one of them that does all of this in the malaria parasite, which makes it a great drug target because you only need to stop one thing and you stop the lot of it. So we went looking to see with these 400 proteins, but we found only one of them. And so we did an experiment to show that it goes to the chloroplast, so we labelled it. So this is actually in Toxoplasma, which is a related species, which is much easier to do, but the same principle applies. We labelled it with, in green, we labelled our remnant chloroplasts in red, and we show, they showed that when we looked down the microscope that our greens and reds were in the same place, so therefore our protein is definitely in the chloroplast. And then what we did was we got rid of it, and the cells died. So that was great. It says, if you can stop this protein from working, it means your cells die and it's got potential to be a drug. So now uh, we're working with people at the uh, Dundee Drug Discovery Units in Scotland to develop some inhibitors to this protein. Now Dundee is the most unlikely place to have a, a center for looking for tropical new drugs against tropical diseases. Maybe they dream of holidays or something, but they're great. They're really fantastic. So we make protein, we discover proteins, we put them in the post to them, and they do the screening. So what we do is we get this protein that we've identified. We can make it. We get the RNA, and we know that the protein binds to the RNA. So that's what naturally happens. And we want to find something which stops this from working. So the people in Dundee have lots of libraries of small chemicals. So they add small chemical, the blue small chemical, and see what happens. Nothing happens. My protein still binds to the RNA. Then they try again with the next one, the green one, still, no, still nothing. The, the brown one, still nothing, still works. The, green, the purple one, still nothing. The dark purple one, still nothing. This is the stage we're at now. I'm waiting for the email to, for them to tell me that they have found the one that works because we're looking for the chemical that will bind to the protein, stopping the RNA from binding. And once we find that chemical, we're in business because we can then add it and use it as a drug. So we, I'm, I've sent them the protein, they're doing the, the analysis and I'm waiting anxiously. I was hoping I could show you something, but Alas, not. This is science. It's slow. So maybe next year. So once they've found that chemical, we'll have a chemical that stops the bind to protein binding to the RNA. Now, that doesn't mean we can start taking it as a drug. It means we then have to do a test. 
The first thing we do is we grow these malaria parasites in the cell in the Petri dish. So we'll add it and we'll check that it actually does kill the malaria cell um, when it's in a Petri dish and see if they die. If that works, we'll also add it to some human cells in the Petri dish to make sure that they don't die. I've got a typo there. I'm really sorry. Because <laughs> we don't want them to die. That'd be awful. Okay. So we need to test that they, that they don't die. Now, actually, the library of chemicals they're using have been pre-screened, so they're only testing things that don't die, but we need to, to do it. At this point, if we find something that kills the malaria cells, doesn't kill the human cells, and we know how it works, then we go and find our friends in the chemistry department and say, we've got a potential here, let's turn it into a drug. But at that point, we stop being biologists we, and we need to be chemists. So then I'll go back to the beginning and I'll start looking for a new drug because I'm interested in the early bits and I'm not interested in the chemistry. Well, I'm definitely not a chemist. So in summary, what I'd like you to go away with today is to remember that chloroplasts are enslaved bacteria. They're found in plants, they're found in algae, and they're found in malaria parasites. The Dinoflagellate algae are essential for coral reefs, and that global warming is causing these Dinoflagellate algae to be stressed and to leave the coral, which will eventually kill a coral reef. And that there's a remnant chloroplast in a malaria parasite that doesn't do photosynthesis, it's essential, and it's an excellent target for new anti-malarial drugs because we as humans don't have a chloroplast. So these are all the people that have helped me um, in the lab to do this research. Um, Joe McKenzie, who is our postdoc, who has now returned um, to New Zealand. Lots of PhD students. Um, Ross, Simone and Chris as well. The people in Dundee. And all these people across the bottom who have given us lots of cash. Great. <laughs> Thanks very much. Are there any questions? Okay, yes. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if you could just clarify one point you made. Um, <clears throat> we know that the algae in um, corals get ejected if the temperature gets too high. Yeah. The heat and chlorine. But we're also told, and told us, that um, the malaria parasite is very closely related genetically. To deal with bloodshots, mm -hmm. the algae yep. in uh, in corals, but um, the malaria parasite is heat tolerant. So, how did these two very closely related species, one is heat tolerant and the other one isn't? Uh, is sure. So, the, so the question is, how? Why are these dinoflagellates so? not tolerant to heat, but the, but the malaria parasites are tolerant yeah. to heat. Yeah. Well, there's actually considerable diversity in the dinoflagellates themselves. And so some of them are very heat tolerant and some of them are not. We've got some in the lab that you can, you can raise the temperature lots and they're absolutely fine. But we don't fully understand why some of them are tolerant and some of them aren't. And sometimes there's probably only a very few bases of DNA that's different. So... That's one of the things we're liking to try. We've got some theories what makes them heat tolerant. Um, I, I think it could possibly be just one gene. There's a few things, changes that we could make. So what we're planning to do in the next few weeks is to introduce those changes into a, 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 a sensitive one 
raise the temperature and see what happens. Um, because I think actually there's lots of reasons why things are are tolerant and things aren't. So. Yeah, in the back. Do people have any theories as to why um, some coral reefs have a monoculture of cyanoflagellates? Many um, biological communities are much more of a, a mixture of, of species. Yeah, so the question is of uh, why is there a monoculture of dinoflagellates? It seems that they take up quite early, dinoflagellates are taken up quite early in the lifestyle of the coral. And I'm, I'm working with somebody called Madeleine Van Oppen at the University of Melbourne who does quite a lot of work on who takes up what and why. Perhaps it's just what's available when they are young. And so if it's those algae around, that's what they take up. Um, they clearly have preference for one or the other because they, she does competition assays. I don't think it's entirely straightforward as to what's going to be taken up, um, and I'm not sure we fully understand what's going on. But if you go looking in different places, there there is diversity within the symbiodinium as to who takes up what. Yeah. I was just wondering, do you think use of development of drugs could be possible to eradicate malaria worldwide, or do you think that's just going to be restricted so use of drugs, so could we wipe out malaria having a good drug? Europe wiped out malaria without, well, with, we had one drug. Um, we wiped it out by putting everybody in houses, um, going inside at night, watching TV, not sitting outside. We could wipe out malaria right across the world if we gave everybody a house, we got rid of corruption. When they got sick, we sent them to hospital. We've got the drugs, we've got the tools to do it now. Um, the real problem is getting it to the people. If you put the infrastructure there, you can do it. Um, so it's a person, I think it's a, a poverty. Malaria is a disease of poverty. We could wipe it out. We can do it. But doing it is very difficult. The reason we need more drugs is because there is resistance to all the drugs we've got at the moment. So what we can manage it but it's going to spread, so and is and it's going to spread before we wipe out malaria. The numbers of deaths have gone down by about sixty percent in the past ten years, so we are making massive inroads in it. But it's going to be a long time yet. Yeah. Presumably, the um, the algae are like or the are the, um, the chloroplast-like structure of the algae is liable to become antibiotic resistant anyway. Some will come through the sieve and eventually uh, it, it will fall down. Yeah, so will will the, will the malaria parasite become resistant? And the answer is yes, they will become resistant. So that's why we need to have four or five in reserve. So when you start spotting resistance and and, and there is monitoring going on to, to check where the resistance is. So when the resistance pops up, you, you swap. So we need to have lots in reserve. Yes, in the front one copy of the sickle cell um, genetic trait interfere with the ability of malaria to spread and, and reproduce? Yeah, so West so this is about the sickle cell trait. So in West Africa, um, so it's especially common to have the sickle cell trait. It's all to do with the structure of the proteins um, going on. So it, it's good to have one because you're less likely to get the malaria, but if you have two, you have... It's, bad. It's, it's to do with the structure of the okay. protein. It's quite complex, but it's structural okay. of the protein. Um, yeah. Question for the, for the responsible person. Um, I would like to 
class, but this lab is finally successful and the bunny gets and the corpse out at the end. Um, would it be affordable for people in the world to have that treatment? Do you have any idea how it would be? So it's about affordability of drugs. So many of these um, drugs for tropical diseases are being um, pushed and and helped by things like the Gates Foundation. So they are being done on a non-commercial way. So I'm not planning to become a billionaire out of it. I'd like to pay the mortgage off, but apart from that, no more. Um, so, but it's, it's through non-profit organizations. So there's some quite interesting social science research that says if you give out things free, people don't use it. But if you put a small charge on it, then people do use it. So one of the big benefits of um, getting rid of malaria at the moment is putting bed nets out. If you sell somebody a bed net at low cost, they will use it. If you just give them a bed net, they won't use it. So psychology is really interesting as to what, what to do. So no, the, the plan for all of this is not to sell it to a big drug company, but to actually produce it in a way to sell it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if they've just bleached, then they can recover. But if they've long-term bleached, um, then that picture, then they will die. When then they have died. So it sort of depends on how extensive the bleaching is and how long it's last lasted for. So short-term, um, assuming there's still some algae left, then they, they can probably recover. But if it's been massive and extensive, then they will die. So coal, we need to understand why, who, which, which one will go in and why. Now, one thing that we could do and what we can do, we will be able to do now with the fact that we can genetically modify them is that we could genetically modify their favorite algae to make it a bit more heat resistant and give it back. Are we then allowed to drop genetically modified algae across the Great Barrier Reef? Well, people don't tend to like doing that, but if the alternative is that there's no more Great Barrier Reef, well, then maybe they'll say yes. So I think there's likely to be some quite significant decisions we have to make over the coming years as to how we're going to do this, because it's only a very few um, temperatures, maybe one or two degrees of, of, of temperature rise, which is enough to kill the coral reefs, and that is exactly what is predicted. So this is going to be a very imminent, very early climate change decision we're going to have to make. And are we almost ready in terms of having the... Um... No. <laughs> no. We know how to do it. We now need to go and prove that, prove that it, it works. I think we're a few years off, off it. But we, we, I think we're ready enough that we will be ready in time. Um, but yeah, not tomorrow. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Is the problem solely with the algae or do the polyps actually spit them out because they are stressed as well? I mean, it, it yeah. may not just be one part of the... So, so the question is who spits out who? The, al the algae are spat out by... By the coral, so the coral is I, the the coral senses that there's damage and spits them out. So yes, we the other thing we could do is go in and stop the stop the coral from doing the spitting out. Um, I I I don't know. Do we add a add a mythical drug to the coral say no spitting out? It's like telling my two year old don't spit out your dinner. <laughs> it's bad for you, but yes, it, it's tricky. <laughs> yeah. No, and not so much. Uh, it might be spitting them out because they're not working, or because it is itself under some heat stress, which means that for some reason it, it doesn't want to do it. So, so the algae that it spits out, yeah. So the algae that gets spat out. Um, one of my colleagues in um, Tony Larkham in Sydney has collected them and has sort of analysed them, and they can still do photosynthesis. So they're still functional despite being spat out, but perhaps they're a bit unhappy. So, and it does seem to be uh, driven by unhappiness in the sensed unhappiness inside the the algae that has been noticed. Okay. We'll do two last questions. One in the corner there. I wondered if we had anything like a sort of coral zoo, and if not, should we should we have that sort of thing for the preservation of species? Yes. Um. I don't know what they've got at James Cook University in uh, Australia. So that's um, on in on the Queensland coast. They've got a massive coral reef research centre there. I haven't been to it. I don't. I presume they've actually got some of them growing, but I don't know. But yes, it does sound like a a good idea to like keep them. Though it takes many tens of thousands of years to grow a coral reef. So even if we do save some, um, it's quite a big ask to reconstitute what we've lost. And one last question. Might not be relevant, but does your approach have any relevance to dengue fever? In other words, I think the tropical disease is quite relevant. Um, no, not directly, though I have um, worked in the past with people who, who work on, on that. But, but, looking, but the idea of looking at what goes on with genes and, and processing and can we identify um, particular proteins which are interesting is how you'd approach many aspects of drug design. So what, what is it about um, malaria that makes it um, unique or difficult? Um, so those ones are all viral driven, whereas this one is a eukaryote. So eukaryotes actually are quite tricky to design things against because we ourselves are eukaryotes as well. Yeah. So many of the things you might want to stop in it, you can't because it would also affect the host. Whereas a virus is completely and utterly different. So in many ways it's a bit easier. The viral people wouldn't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Thank you. <laughs>